good day and welcome to the Mercy Hill Podcast. My name is Lawson Harlow and I'm one of the elders here at Mercy Hill Church. What you are about to listen to is a sermon that was preached during our weekly worship services in Olive Branch, Mississippi. We hope that you will be encouraged by the preaching of the word as you aim to follow Jesus and make disciples. For more information about Mercy Hill Church, you can visit mercyhillob.org or you can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash mercyhillchurchob. Thanks for listening. Good morning. If you have a Bible this morning, our text is Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3, we're going to be working through Romans 3 verses 1 through 8. Romans chapter 3 verses 1 through 8. And when you arrive there in your copy of God's Word, I do ask that you would stand in honor of God's Word. Romans chapter 3 Beginning in verse 1, we'll read down to verse 8. We believe these words were given by inspiration of God and are the only sufficient, certain, and authoritative rule of all saving knowledge, faith, and obedience. And this is what Paul says. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do do evil that good may come? As some people have slanderously charged us with saying. Their condemnation is just. Let's pray. Father, this morning we ask humbly, that you would use your word to teach us, that we would be built up together, that you would use your word to convict the sinner, to encourage the saint, to conform us to the image of your son. And in his name we pray, amen. You can be seated. Over the past several years, I have made it a goal to go back and read all of the books, well, most of the books that I was supposed to read in high school and college that I was a bad student for in those times. And most recently, uh, I have made my way through a book that I do remember being supposed to read in high school, uh, a book by William Faulkner called As I Lay Dying. And as I was reading this book, um, the, the plot of the book is that there's a family whose matriarch has passed away, and, and her, her dying wish was that her remains would be taken to her hometown in Mississippi. And this family seemingly is doing all of this work to get her to her hometown so that she can be buried there with her family. And through the the course of the book, what, what we find out about this family is that while they say with their lips that they love their matriarch, whether it's their mother or, uh, the man's wife, there are actually self-centered motivations in literally everything that they do. 
while they say that everything is, is for her and they want to honor her last wishes, it seems like as situations move forward in the text that these members of this family, they really just all have personal motivations that are, have nothing to do with their mother at all. And this is the situation in many ways that Paul has laid out in Romans chapter 2 for the Jews. Paul has informed the the audience here that the the ethnic Jews here in Romans chapter 2 that he has explained, they, they say that they are sons of Abraham, that they are children of Abraham, that they're in the line, that they are Jews, that they are circumcised, that they have the law, that they have the covenant. But it would seem... And from what Paul has said very clearly, that they are wrong, that they have a faulty understanding of what it means to be in the line of Abraham, that they have a faulty understanding of circumcision that has value, of the law that has value. They assumed that they were members of the family, but their hearts were far from him. And when we get to Romans chapter 3 this morning, Paul is continuing this argument that he has started in, really in, in Romans chapter 1, but more specifically in chapter 2 toward the Jews. And it's amazing, isn't it, that the story of Scripture from, from beginning to end seems like there are people in the family that you don't expect and there are people not in the family that you would have expected for them to be there. And so Romans chapter 3 continues this argument that Paul is making. If you're taking notes this morning, our sermon in a sentence, is that every mouth is stopped. Every mouth is stopped. On Thursdays, we're reading through, the, the men are reading through the Pilgrim's Progress, and often in the Pilgrim's Progress, uh, John Bunyan uses um, this tactic of getting information to his reader through question and answer. So one character will question another character, uh, and it's almost catechism-like. He asked, one character asks a question and the other answers and, and there's, an, there's another question and an answer and we kind of get an understanding of so many glorious things in, in the Pilgrim's Progress through this question and answer style. Well, we have this here in Romans chapter 3, verses 1 to 8. But instead of being catechism, like it's almost, it's almost like an anti-catechism. It's almost like an evil catechism here. Paul takes the form, in, you could say, of an imagined opponent. He takes the form of someone who would say, Paul, I hear what you're saying, but I don't think that that is true. And he begins to ask questions that he imagines this person would ask. And so we want to walk through those four questions. We're going to examine this morning the four questions that this supposed opponent raises and then Paul's responses uh, in order to understand what the correct response to Paul's teaching in chapter 2 is. And so if you're taking notes, I really, I didn't, I'm not creative. I just took it from the text. So the first point is, what advantage has the Jew? What advantage has the Jew? This comes from verses 1 and 2. This supposed opponent says first, then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way, to begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. Paul addresses this first obvious objection to the argument that he's been mounting, which is then it's worthless to be a Jew. Paul, I hear everything you've said in chapter 2, then it must be just worthless to be a Jew. He says, what is the advantage that the Jew has? What is the value of our circumcision? 
But to really catch the, the flow of this argument, this argument started all the way back in chapter 1, verse 16. It, it started all the way back when, when Paul said, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. It started in, in verse 17 where he says, For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Because as an ethnic Jewish reader heard that verse, the first thought in his mind is, that's me. I, I, I'm living by faith because I'm a son of Abraham. And Paul goes on in chapter 1, verses 18 to 32, and he, he talks about, uh, he, he really talks to the whole world, but more specifically we see to the Gentiles, and he says, you all are ungodly. You all are unrighteous. You all have suppressed the truth. You've all become futile. Your foolish hearts have been darkened. There's this refrain in chapter 1 that says, and God gave them up. God gave them up. God gave them up. And it's like the Jews are sitting there in the corner saying, that's right. That's them. It's not us. That's them. And Paul says, I, I haven't gotten to you yet. In chapter 2, he gets to them and he says, you think you're off the hook, but you're not. He addresses their hypocrisy. He addresses that the end of their works is not righteousness. He tells them that their sin must be judged. He tells them that their physical circumcision is betrayed by the lack of their circumcised hearts. And by the end, both Jew and Gentile are left exposed with nowhere to hide within themselves. He says, none of your religious practice or your religious history will exempt you from God's wrath. Your lineage, your circumcision of the flesh, the law. And it's interesting then that in the beginning of chapter 3 that Paul almost assumes that there's going to be an objection. He almost assumes that someone's going to say, wait, 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 wait. It sounds like what you're saying is that the Jews had no advantage over the, over the Gentiles. Is this true, Paul? It sounds like what you're saying is we're all in the same boat. So the Jews didn't have any advantage. This word advantage, it means over and above. It's almost, it carries the, the, the concept of being excessive. Like, like the, the Jews had an excessive advantage. And more than a question here, it almost feels like an accusation. So you're saying that the Jews did not have an advantage? Are you saying that Abraham's call, the covenant given to the law, to him, the law, the promises, the seal of circumcision, that has no purpose to our advantage? And this is the, the point where this objector would say, Paul, this sounds really great, but it seems like you've kind of gotten lost in your logic. I don't think this is, what, this is what's reality. And the expected answer then from what Paul has been arguing all through Romans chapter 2, and when he says, then what advantage has the Jew, or what is the value of circumcision, the expected answer is none. But that's not what he says. Look what he says. Much in every way. One commentator says, this answer does not follow. This feels like a betrayal of everything he said in chapter 2. Where... What do you mean it's valuable in every way? How could it be advantageous? How could it be valuable in every way if you've just said that we're all in the same boat? That we're all unrighteous and that we're all ungodly? And I want you to see what he says. Verse 2. 
much in every way, to begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. It's funny that he says to begin with because he doesn't really go on and give any more points. My mind works in outlines. I mean, I outline everything I'm going to do in a week. I outline the grocery store based off of where things are in the store. I outline everything. My, my life works in outlines. And I look here at Romans 3 and I'm like, he says first and there's no second and there's no third and there's no fourth. What, what is he saying? <laughs> I mean, I'm serious. I'm sitting here for an hour this week trying to figure out what is he saying? Maybe I could play with the Greek and say, well, he's meaning this is the, the primary. This is the first in status. Or maybe he, he's just sidetracked. Maybe, he's, maybe he meant to have more reasons and he just kind of got sidetracked. But I think it's more powerful than that. I think what he is saying is he's saying there is one benefit that the Jews had. There is one great benefit that the Jews, Jews had. And what was it? To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. The Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. The definition here of oracles is a divine utterance. It's got the same root word as the word logos, where we get the word word. It's the same word used to describe Christ in John chapter 1 from the same root. It means a divine utterance. It's only used four times in the entire New Testament. So what does it mean that they were entrusted with the oracles of God? If we're asking this question, if we're following this logic, he says, okay, so, so what is the advantage of the Jew? What is the value of circumcision? Why do the Jews have advantage in every way? Paul says, because they were given the word, the divine utterance, the oracles of God. Here is the value. What's the advantage? What's the value? The Jews were entrusted with the divine utterances of God. Have you ever noticed how important words are in the scriptures? Not just that they are full of words, but that from the beginning God spoke. That from the beginning God spoke the world into motion. That God, when he, when he desired to interact with Abraham and to Moses, he spoke to them. That the prophet said, thus says the Lord. They were given the very word of God. And we see this illustrated, and if you want to turn there, you're welcome to, in Acts chapter 7. We see this really plainly and beautifully illustrated in Acts chapter 7. In Acts chapter 7, Stephen is being questioned before the high priest. Stephen believes in Christ, and he's being questioned, and some accusations have come up against him. And in chapter 7, he begins to preach this sermon to the high priest and all who are there to listen. And Stephen recounts the gift of God's word to the Jews. If you look at uh, Acts chapter 7, verse 2, it says, And Stephen said, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran, and said to him. He said to him, Go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. From the beginning, Stephen says, God spoke to Abram. If you look in verse 5, Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke, spoke 
to this effect, that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them 400 years, but I will judge the nation that they serve, said God. If you skip forward to verse 30 of Acts chapter 7, now when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight. And as he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and Isaac and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. Verse 33, then the Lord said to him. What did he say to him? He said, take off your sandals for your feet, of your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their groaning, and I've come down to deliver them. If you look forward in verse 38, God spoke the law. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles. There's that same word. He received living oracles to give to us. If you look down, it continues in verse 45. It says that, that God spoke to David, saying that he would build him a house. And we look at Acts chapter 7, and we, we go back to Romans chapter 3, where, where Paul says that the advantage of the Jew is that they have the oracles of God. What are those oracles announcing? What are these oracles announcing? What is God speaking to Abraham? What is God speaking to Moses? What is God speaking to David? Galatians says, Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It did not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. His oracles in the Old Testament have been shouting Christ from the beginning. What did God tell Moses that he had come to do? In Acts chapter 7, it says that he came to deliver his people. Now, I want to remind you, this is Jude 5, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus who saved the people out of the land of Egypt afterward destroyed those who did not believe. How did the law spoken to Moses serve the people? What is God saying? We know from chapter 3 of Romans, verse 20, that no human being will be justified by works of the law since through the law comes knowledge of sin. What did God promise to David for looking through this oracles of the Old Testament? What did, what did God promise to David? 2 Samuel seven sixteen, he promised that his throne should be established forever. What had the Jews been giving? Given the very words of God and what had the words been shouting? Acts 7.52 calls it the coming of the righteous one. The word had been shouting the coming of the righteous one. Whether it was the law, whether it was the prophets, the covenants, the types, the shadows, all of it is shouting. He is coming. There is a righteous one coming. Moses spoke of him in Deuteronomy 18. He said, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him that you shall listen. There is a hope of the coming Messiah. This is the advantage of the word of God. 
He says, what is the advantage? It's not that they had a physical circumcision. It's that they were given the oracles of God that shouted Christ. And church, the glory of this is that we have the full word of God. We have been given the word of God. We have the full written word. We had the word made flesh in John 1.14, it says, and in him are the words of eternal life. We have been given Christ and we have his full word. He has spoken. And this is just a side point, but this morning we have even seen like the glory of, of this privilege it is to have the word of God. What a gift it is for our children to be raised hearing the word of God to be part of this every week where we hear the word preached, where we sing together, to be in our homes, where we raise them in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. There are no weak testimonies. There's, there's no sense in which, well, if, if you were raised in a Christian home and then came to Christ in that Christian home, that that's somehow a, a weak testimony. That is a glorious testimony. We have been given the word of God. We've been... St- We have been given the stewardship of it with our children. But Paul's opponent doesn't stop here in asking what advantage has the Jew. Paul's opponent assumes as he continues that this truth, that the oracles were not of full value because he says, well, some were unfaithful. So if you're taking notes, the second point this morning is, that what if some were unfaithful? That's what he says in verse 3. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithful, faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar. As it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. Paul addresses the second objection, namely that God must be unfaithful since the Jews were unfaithful. The question here is, what if some were unfaithful? This is the next level of the argument really taken toward its logical end, which if you can guess by now is not going upwards in trajectory, it's going downwards in trajectory. And this next level of the logical argument is, if you're saying that it was great value that the Jews had the oracles of God, then what about those who were unfaithful? If the Jews are unfaithful, does that mean that God is unfaithful? And I think this word some here is hyperbole, obviously. What if some were unfaithful? All have been unfaithful except one. Paul had already charged that all are unfaithful in chapter 1, verse 18. In chapter 2, verse 1, it is assumed that all are unfaithful here. But what does this unfaithfulness look like? What is Paul saying what is the meaning of this unfaithfulness? Well, this unfaithfulness is that they were, the Jews were given the covenant, but they didn't obey. They were given the law, but they were not doers of it. They were hearers only. They were circumcised in the flesh, but their hearts had not been renewed. And the question here then, in, in verse 3, does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? If some were disobedient, if some were faithfulness, then God must not be faithful. Why would they think this? Well, if we look back at chapter 2, we know that they assumed that because they were in Abraham's physical line that they would receive the blessing of the covenant God made with them. 
Paul will go on in Romans chapter 9. And I'm just going to really try hard not to make a joke about how long it'll take us to get there. But in Romans chapter 9, it says, but not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. They assumed that because they were in the the physical line of Abraham that they would receive the promise, and that was not the case. They boasted in having the law, but they didn't follow it. They claimed salvation in their physical circumcision, but their hearts had not been transformed. They misunderstood the promise altogether. And Paul, after telling them these things in chapter 2, he assumes that like Adam and Eve in the garden, they would blame God. Well, his promises aren't good enough. His purposes have failed. He's not faithful. He is actually faithless. But the question we have to ask is, is God unfaithful? Has God failed in his purposes? And this is what I love here in Romans chapter 3, verse 4. He says, by no means. Your translation may say the words, God forbid. What's interesting is in the Greek, the word God is nowhere near this phrase. The translators were like trying to figure out how can we make the strongest negative answer possible? And that's what they put. If you have the ESV, it says by no means. It's a double negative. Paul says no. Don't even let the thought enter your mind that God is unfaithful. Don't even let the an inkling of that thought come to your mind. It's not that God was unfaithful. It's that these ethnic Jews had faulty definitions of what a Jew even was or what circumcision was or what the covenant was or what the promise was. They were looking at all of this in earthly terms. We we know this from the gospels. They were looking for an earthly king. They were looking for an earthly promise. They They were based all in the flesh. One commentator imagines what was going on in the Jewish mind as he reads this. He says, God has chosen us as his people in Abraham. If we retain our relationship to him by circumcision and the observance of the law, we will never be treated or condemned like the Gentiles. We, we, we know this thought process was true in John 8. They say we are Abraham's descendants. We even have this in, in more... Um, kind of the time period of the first century, we have primary sources that say, if a Jew commits all manners of sins and he is indeed of the number of sinning Israelites and will be punished according to his sins, but he has notwithstanding a portion in eternal life. Justin Martyr said, they suppose that to them universally, who are descendants of Abraham, no matter how sinful or disobedient to God, that they may be the eternal kingdom will be given. But the reality is what we just read from Romans chapter 9 is that not all who descend from Israel belong to Israel. And here's here's the truth. Is God unfaithful? By no means. Don't let the thought enter your mind because God has proven faithful to the elect from the beginning. He has always proven faithful. The oracle shouted Christ to the elect from the beginning 
And what did they do? Even if they didn't know his name, they believed that he was coming. Even if they did not recognize his name, they believed that he was on the way. The coming of the righteous one. But here's the question. What had these Jews done with the oracles that God had entrusted with them? Largely, what had they done? Well, if we go back to Acts chapter 7, it tells us what they did. In verse 38 of Acts chapter 7, they were given the law, and what does it say they did? This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside. And in their hearts, they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out of the, from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and gave them over to worship of the host of heaven as it is written in the book of the prophets. If you go on to verse 51 in chapter 7 of Acts, it says, you stiff-necked people. This is Stephen. This is the moment of his accusation. He says, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the laws delivered by angels and did not keep it. What did they do with the oracles? killed the prophets. They went headlong into idolatry. It's what they had always done. And Paul goes on here and he says, by no means let God be true, though everyone were a liar. Romans 15, 8 and 9 says, for I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness, in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs, in order that the Gentiles might glorify God. The question we come to is, are, are the promises real? Are they true? Is the covenant real? Is there really salvation in doing the law? Romans 15 would say, Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness. Yes, they're real. Who has obeyed the law? One, his name is Jesus. He held up the other end of the covenant. Christ became a servant. Christ followed the law perfectly. Christ held up all of it. And it's almost as if Paul is saying, in all of your trying to do, in all of your trying to muster your own righteousness, you missed the reality the whole time. You could never be faithful, but he is faithful on your behalf. And it's at this point that Paul brings in a quote from Psalm 51. He says that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. Psalm 51, if, if you need to be reminded, the context is, is when David is really owning up to his sin with Bathsheba in, um, in his adultery and also in his murdering of her husband. And he's owning up to the sin. He's been confronted by Nathan. And he says to God, against you and you only have I sinned. And it's almost like here in Psalm 51, and, and then also Paul and his opponent in Romans 3 put God on trial. And they say, here are a myriad accusations that we could throw against you. Your promises aren't true. Your commitment to your people 
has wavered. Your plans have failed. Your word is weak. And what does he say here? You stand justified. God has never wavered. His promises are always true. His commitment is always unwavering. His plans have never failed. His word is strong. Romans 9 says, but it is not as though God has failed. Job said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. How? Because we know that all the promises of God find their yes in who? In Christ. And what's interesting here is that Paul turns, it al- Paul turns it around on them. Matthew Henry said, the infidelity and obstinacy of the Jews could not invalidate and overthrow those prophecies of the Messiah which were contained in the oracles committed to them. Christ will be glorious. Through Israel, though Israel be not gathered, God's word shall be accomplished. His purpose performed, all the ends answered, though there be a generation that by their unbelief, go about to make God a liar. God will be true. And here's the interesting. Here's what's glorious about this. The question or the accusation mounted is, if some are unfaithful, does their faithfulness nulli- faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? And the reality is, the opposite is true. Our faithlessness proves the faithfulness of God all the more. Acts 7 speaks of the patriarchs throwing Joseph into slavery. And in that act of faithlessness, God provided for the people of Israel literally for centuries. Acts 2, Paul, uh, Peter says in his sermon, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God's faithfulness was proved in the faithlessness of people. Nothing thwarts the plans of God. No one thwarts the plans of God. And it's the opposite. It's not that our faithfulness nullifies God's faithfulness. It's our, our faithlessness nullifies God's faithfulness. It's that our faithlessness magnifies God's faithfulness. Which leads to our next objection. Because knowing God's faithfulness is proven by the Jews' faithlessness, this imaginary opponent asks, number three, verses five to seven, is God unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? Well, if our faithlessness proves how faithful he is, how majestic he is, how glorious he is, then how is it right that he would inflict wrath on us? This is the logical next step in this faulty logic. The logic follows, well, the Jews failed, And the failure of the Jews magnified the glory, power, and faithfulness of God. Therefore, it would be unrighteous for God to judge the sin of the Jews. This is where I love the end of verse 5. Paul says, I speak in a human way. He says, it's it's becoming really hard for me to keep a straight face right now. This, This is descending into ludicrous. Paul is struggling here to keep the, the logic up. And the question is, would it not be inequity for God to judge and inflict wrath on us for sins that actually prove to show his majesty all the more? Isn't that unfair? This really seems like a rebuttal to chapter 2, verse 5, where Paul says, but because of your hard and impenitent hearts, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Well, isn't that unfair, Paul? 
That doesn't seem right. And what's amazing here is that the Jews spent half of chapter 1 on their proverbial high horses, looking down their noses at the Gentiles, falsely believing, that's not us. We're not those people. We're different. We would never do those things. They relied on their religious behavior. They relied on their Jewish heritage. And Paul spent all of Romans 2, and now the first three verses of Romans 3, saying none of that will save you. And there's an application for us here this morning. The same goes for us here. There is nothing. If, if you are here this morning and your thought is, well, I'm going to muster up the strength to be good, or I'm going to present my church attendance to God on Judgment Day, or I'm going to present that I read my Bible or that I achieved some kind of goodness or that I was brought up religious. Scripture says it's filthy rags. There's nothing that we can offer. And we see that because Paul says again in verse 6, by no means. It almost reminds me of Jesus saying, get behind me, Satan. Don't even think that way. Don't even go to that thought. And in this, we find this theological truth of this, um, this back and forth of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. These two things are not at odds with one another. Romans 9, 14 says, What shall we say then? Is there any injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Paul will go on in Romans 6 to say that the wages of sin is death. God's sovereignty and man's responsibility are, are in harmony. These are not at odds with one another. And I love that Paul doesn't even give this objection the time of day to, to deal with it biblically. He literally just calls out the faulty logic. If you look at verse 6, by no means... For then how could God judge the world? Paul is just following with this logical argument because he knew. He knew that these Jewish men believed that God was going to judge the world. They just didn't think that they were a part of it. He knew that these men believed that God would judge the Gentiles, that God would judge those who weren't circumcised, that God would judge those who were apart from the commonwealth. And this is what, this is what he says. Well, if God can't judge you, who we have already established, are the same, dead in sin, apart from God, then he can't judge anyone. What's the point? What is, what is Paul communicating here? God is just and righteous in and of himself. He doesn't have to prove his righteousness by our unrighteousness. He doesn't have to prove his justice by our injustice. God is just and righteous in and of himself. He doesn't need us to be unrighteous in order to prove himself righteous. This juxtaposition is amazing, but it's not, it's not necessary. God is righteous and just in and of himself. In verse 7, he says, But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a, as a sinner? Because a lie is a lie. Because sin is sin. Because God is just and righteous. And here's the reality. God's glory is actually displayed, is actually revealed in punishing the sinner instead of exonerating him. 
Paul says, you have your logic all wrong. We believe this. God is righteous to inflict wrath on all who do not believe. We don't apologize for that. But we also are reminded to celebrate that he inflicted wrath for our sin on Christ. First Peter says he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. And it's at this point that Paul's imaginary opponent descends into the lowest point of his argument. The lowest point of his logic. Verse, four, uh, verse 8. And why not do evil that good may come? as some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. Here's the logical end of this argument. Well, if you truly believe that what has been, what you've believed is true, that it would be wrong for God to judge sin, it'd be unrighteousness for him to inflict wrath, since our faithlessness shows his faithfulness, then you would believe that the worse we are, the more merciful God can prove himself to be. And Paul deals with this in Romans 5 and 6. We'll we'll see that when we get there. He says, this is worthy of just condemnation. Verse 8. Their condemnation is just. And we find out here that this is not some imaginary argument. This is not some made-up argument because some have slanderously charged Paul with this. And here's the reality. Because the gospel is foolish to those who are perishing, this should be charged of our gospel. We preach a gospel that is glorious in grace. That there is nothing that you could muster, nothing that you could create in and of yourself, no good work, no balancing of the scales to Somehow make yourself right with God. This is a glorious truth because he has made us right with himself in the death of his son. And this, this is something that someone would slanderously charge if they believed the gospel to be foolish. They would say, well, why don't you just continue in sin? But unlike men who would hear this passage and say, let me muster up my own defense. Let me figure out my own righteousness. Let me work at it myself. We glory in the fact that we have none to muster. We maintain that Jesus held up our end. How glorious. And we find here, though, at the end, that their condemnation is just. The end of Paul's argument with his foe finds the foe condemned. And Paul, in the right, I think it serves as a reminder to us. None of us chose Christ. None of us made our way to him out of our own goodwill. He rescued each of us if we're in Christ. He is the one who saves. And so we can rest in this humility. We had nothing to offer. And yet he has been faithful. He has committed himself to his elect. Praise be to God.